our Old Testament lesson, Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through the beginning of verse 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now please turn with me to our New Testament lesson and sermon text. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. That's page 857 in your pew Bible. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. Let us hear now God's holy and inspired word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine that you lived in the ancient world. 
If you're a man, you're probably some sort of farmer. So your dreams of being a homesteader just came true. For you women, you're a housemaker. You too, your dreams have now come true. And you're in your home one day, and there's a knock on the door. You walk to the door, and you open it, and you look out, and what is standing in front of you but an entire army of mighty warriors who were battle-tested standing immediately in front of you. You recognize that they are not warriors of your society. They are from a different one altogether. What would you be thinking? Clearly, you would not be expecting that you have a long time to live. Clearly, you would think that best case scenario, they take everything you own, they might leave you with your life. That's the best case scenario. What if that group of warriors then turned into a great big choir? What if they came to your door, not as warriors to destroy you, but as Christmas carolers? who then began to sing to you about peace, a message of peace. How shocking would that be? Would you not have whiplash? I thought my life is done for, and now these foreign invaders who stand in front of my door are actually singing a song to me and singing about peace. Well, this is something like what those shepherds experienced out in that field. We are so accustomed to thinking about angels as cute little cherubs on those Hallmark cards, right? Those little cherubs that sit on your shelf. Very innocent, very harmless, of course. Chubby, you want to pinch their cheeks or whatever. Angels, biblically speaking, are warriors. Fierce combatants, they go forth as the angelic host, the army of God, to do battle in the spiritual realm. And so when those shepherds were given that visionary glimpse of the heavenly host in front of them, they were seeing warriors who turned into a choir who then sang, verse 14, about not war, but about peace. We're going to be thinking about peace this morning. Peace is a theme in the Gospel of Luke. Peace emerged in the Song of Zechariah, just a chapter before. As Zechariah broke forth from his muteness and sang about his son, John the Baptist, who would then create a way of peace, leading Israel into that path of peace to meet Messiah. Simeon, in just a few verses later, will take the Christ child into his arms, and as he holds Christ, he will sing of his imminent death with peace. You see peace throughout this gospel, as Jesus himself ministers to the crowds of sinners and pronounces upon them peace, and as he sends his apostles forward to minister a message of peace, but then to bring peace back to themselves if someone would not believe their message. Peace is for believers. And after the resurrection, take a lucky guess, 
what Jesus pronounced to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He pronounced to them the accomplishments of peace. Those who humbly receive the Christ child find peace. And today, as we come to consider this humble manger scene, we discover here a foreshadowing of the accomplishments of our peace lying in that manger. Let's begin. First point. Let's ask the question, why are the angels announcing peace? What is going on? What has just happened that they begin to sing this heavenly melody to bring comfort to frightened shepherds? Well, first, God is fulfilling the Scriptures. He is fulfilling His promises, verses 1 through 5. God has already been at work, of course. In His providence, God has been orchestrating human events. And what God needed to do was take this pregnant woman, Mary, and get her from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, we all know that women are told by their OB, don't travel when you are late in your pregnancy. And I don't think that many women who are late in their pregnancy need much encouragement to not travel. They prefer to stay put, if at all possible. However, as we learn from Proverbs 21, verse 1, the, hearts, the king's heart, pardon me, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns the king's heart wherever he wills. And so God, at the very, most, at the very proper point in time, caused the mightiest king on earth, Caesar Augustus, to summon a census be taken. And so when Caesar says go, and your OB says stay, guess who wins? Caesar. And so Mary had to go forth from Nazareth to go to Bethlehem to be registered in the census. You see, the Lord had brought about in the heart of Caesar a desire for some more money. For some more taxation. That's what a census is about. To count the people. Once they're counted, to collect their money from them. Because he must have had something he needed in that um, uh, registration. But God's providence was already at work even before that, of course. He was not only moving the heart of Caesar to get Mary there. First, he had actually brought Mary and Joseph together. And kept them together in the midst of some difficult circumstances. God had brought Mary to a man who was of the lineage of Judah, whom we considered last night, and also David. For the Christ child had to be legally of that lineage for him to be a rightful king. And so when the time of the census came, Joseph then would have to take Mary back to the town of his upbringing, the town of his family, to, Je to Bethlehem, to be numbered there, to not only be numbered there, but to then fulfill the Scriptures. Recall Micah 5, our Old Testament lesson. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. The end of that reading, he shall be 
their peace. It was well known amongst the scribes that this is where the Davidic king would be born. Recall Matthew's gospel, how when the Magi came to Jerusalem and asked, where is this Christ child who's been born? They, the scribes quickly said, well, he's in Bethlehem if he's anywhere, because that's where the prophets said he must be born. And so here, the Lord is working history to bring Mary into Bethlehem that Christ might there be born. He is working to fulfill Scripture. God is also here working to fulfill His promises. He is a covenant-keeping, a promise-keeping God. Last night we reflected upon Genesis 49, verse 10, where Jacob blessed Judah prophetically and said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Christ being born in the city of Judah. Christ being born then in the city of David. God is a promise-keeping God. Not only had God made that promise to Judah long ago, but then to David himself in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what we call the Davidic covenants. God gave these words to him. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so here in verses 1 through 5, as the Holy Family goes to Bethlehem, we see that God is bringing about fulfillment to the Scriptures, fulfillment to the promises. Whether a high king in high places like Caesar, or whether an impoverished family, all are under His control, all under His sovereignty, He is bringing about the fulfillments of Holy Scripture. Verses 1 through 5. Our second point, we come, verses 6 to 7, to this humble manger scene. And here I'd like to first begin by encouraging us not to be thinking about the manger scenes we see on the side of the streets or which might be inside your house. For those really arise from the medieval church as certain... Um, ideas, I think it's uh, coming especially from uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, if memory serves, that these manger scenes began to be commonplace at that time. And so there'd be a barn, there'd be animals around a barn, this peaceful, quiet scene there with straw and hay and bedding outside of a house and removed from any sort of a domestic um, environment. That's why we then think about the manger scene as we do. Likewise, you might... Uh, think that there were necessarily three of the Magi, three wise men. But again, that comes from the medieval church. The only thing about three is that those were the three kinds of gifts that were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As the medieval church said, they were named Caspar, Caspar Melchior, and Balthazar. We have no idea if that's the, those were their names, okay? Just to be clear, we want to distinguish some tradition, which maybe it's rooted in some element of truth we don't quite know, but then coming back to what the Bible actually teaches us, I think it's better to understand here that Jesus was not being born in some barn. Okay? 
Likewise, in the text here, it's translated because of tradition, because of history. Verse 7, there was no place for them in the inn. It's almost certainly not an inn. It's probably referring to a lodging place inside a domicile. What's probably going on here, and I'm using the word probably because we just don't know exactly, is that this is not some hotel. Hotels would not be really existing in the cities. The hotels more often existed along the roads, like Luke says later with the Good Samaritan, who finds a man beaten on the road, takes him to an inn, he's along the roadside, puts him up there in the inn, and then comes back and checks on him later. It's a different Greek word. This is a word that's more, like, more often used to refer then to a lodging place within a domicile. What's probably going on here is this, that Joseph is going back for that family reunion. He's going back to the home of whether it's his childhood or maybe it's his great-grandparents' home. He's going back there. There would be his family members there. And so the family would converge on these houses that were part of the Joseph family. And if you were to go to one of those ancient houses, you would have a floor that was the second floor, and that would be the place where the people would sleep the ground floor would be the place where you do your work. It would be the kind of dirty area or the cooking area. And at nighttime, you would bring in the family cow or the family goats, and you'd bring that into that lower level. And that lower level, you'd also have a manger there that could then serve multiple purposes. It could serve for cattle feed at nighttime, or it could be used then in the daytime in terms of cooking purposes and storage and whatnot. When there is no room for them in the lodging place, what's most likely going on is that the family room on the upstairs was filled with all of Joseph's family members. And so he and his pregnant wife had to go downstairs into a place that was not designed for sleep, down to the workspace, the lower level, where you would also find a manger. Now, some more helpful church tradition from about the second century, Justin Martyr, he speaks about how the family was actually gathering in a cave. And that that in a cave is where Jesus was born. These are not necessarily separate ideas. For indeed, a house could have been erected on top of some sort of cave, then the cave serving as a lower level. The um, doctor of the ancient church, one of them, Jerome, also believed that that was the correct understanding of where Jesus was born. So perhaps, I'd say most likely, he's born in a lower level of a house, not in an area designed at all for sleeping. The family's upstairs, Mary and Joseph downstairs, perhaps in sort of a cave-like environment where the animals would be gathering at night, divided in that room between the animals and the people with a manger in between. That, then, is where Jesus was probably laid. I don't mention that because this is all that important, but because I do want us to be thinking more biblically than traditionally about these things. In the end, it doesn't really make much of a difference. I think in the end, what that description does for us is it roots us more in history rather than in sentimentality, but it still keeps in front of us the significant aspects of Christ's humility. Of Christ's humility. 
he is clearly born of a peasant family. And he comes to a home that does not have enough room for even for a pregnant woman. So they send them downstairs because there's just simply no room. And they're being kind of marginalized, to be quite frank. Doesn't seem like the kind of thing you do for a pregnant woman. You seem like, seems like you'd want to treat her well. Put her in the best possible space. But that is not how the Holy Family is being treated. For indeed, the Christ child is being put on the margins at the very beginning. He's being put in a manger because there's no bed for him. There's no place for him to lay his head. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have their nests, but not the Son of Man. Whether later in his life or even in the first day of his life, he's being placed upon the margins. He is facing humility. Well, let's go back to my initial question. Why in the world are these things causing, verse 14, the angels to sing about peace? For after all, these are the events that led to that chorus. A baby and a feeding trough. What in the world is going on? Well, we're not so... We don't really do this in our day. But one of the things that was well known in the ancient world is that oftentimes the first and early events of a child's life, they kind of believe that that also shaped their destiny. So think about, for example, Jacob. Jacob, when he's born, what happened? He came out of the womb as what? A heel grabber. And that was a metaphor for being like a cheat. Okay? What then was Jacob's destiny? He was a cheat. He was a heel grabber. That was the thing that Esau appealed to after Jacob cheated him out of his birthright and then his blessing. Isn't he rightly named heel grabber? In my own experience, one particular child in my house came out extra loud with extra drama. I'll tell you what, thus far it's held true. Oftentimes, the early parts of a child's life tell you something about the later existence. And that's what we're seeing here. That's what we should understand here. What compels the angels to sing about peace is the humiliation of the Son. His humiliation is seen, foreshadowed by the manger. His humiliation will encompass his life. His humiliation will come to its climax at the cross. He would be humbled to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is what compels the angels to sing a song about peace. In that manger, they saw a picture of the destiny of Jesus. He would be crucified for our sins. He would bear our punishments. His humiliation would bring you and me peace. Boys and girls, do you understand that the cross of Jesus brings you peace because Jesus carried your sins. And when He carried your sins, He then died for your sins. 
He bore the anger of God. God would be angry against you because of your sins, but God was angry with Jesus and punished Jesus instead. He was humbled for you. That's why the angels can sing about peace. Because God is no longer at war with you. He went to war with your Savior instead. And so now the angelic warriors do not sing about your defeats, but they sing about peace, about joy, about blessedness, and about victory. Our second point, the humble manger. Third, the humble celebrates. Verses 8 through 20. Celebration, after all, is what you'd expect. If a royal child is born, the whole world knows about it, right? At the very least, the kingdom celebrates. The king and queen roll out the red carpet. They welcome people to their home. They throw a great banquet. Everyone celebrates. Everyone rejoices. Why? Because the royal monarchy will go on for generation after generation. That's what you expect. You expect the king to send forth his herald, the town crier, out into the streets and say, Hear ye, hear ye, good news! The king's son has been born. Let us celebrate the birth of the royal offspring. Or something like that. And here we find the king being born. In the city of the king, David. And if you're in that city, you would have been able to see from Bethlehem the great palace of Herod built on a large mountain or hill three miles away. But the palace there was quiet. The lights were still turned out. No rejoicing was happening there. In the streets of Bethlehem, streets that during the daytime would be filled with people bursting at the seams because of all the people coming back to their hometown for the census and probably making the best use of the time to have some fun with family. All the lights were out. The streets were quiet. No celebration was occurring. Silence. In the middle of that night, God sent his angelic herald not to the palace, not to the rich, not to the broad streets, he sent his herald to lowly shepherds that were in a field. Blue-collar workers, unable to enjoy the luxury of sleep. Shepherds who were roaming the very same fields that the shepherd boy David would have roamed in his childhood, caring for flocks that were likely being raised to be sent to Jerusalem not so far away, to be slaughtered for sacrifice. These shepherds who are caring for those lambs then heard the angelic herald, heard the song of peace, and then these lowly men were then given privilege to go and see the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The humble get to see 
the humble Christ. They get to behold the one who would be slaughtered for them, to be sacrificed for them. And so what do they do? Having heard the angelic herald, what do they do as they come to see the humble king in the manger? They celebrate and they tell anyone who could hear what they had heard and what they had seen. This is the great context in which we see the message of peace. Peace because of a humble king. Peace declared to a humble people. From manger to the cross, our humble king humbled himself to bring peace to his humble people. Our third point, the humble celebrates. As we draw these things to a close, beloved, Boys and girls, let me encourage you today as we sit upon the cusp of Christmas Day, you're likely becoming excited about gifts that are sitting under the tree or the gifts that you might receive from family or friends. But boys and girls, remember the gift of Jesus. Remember the greater gift. You could receive everything in the toy store. You could receive everything on Amazon. You could receive everything that your heart could ever desire. But if you did not have peace with God, you would be destroyed on the last day. Jesus brings us peace. The Father gave you and me the Son, sending Him to the cross, not merely placing him in a lowly manger to lie where no baby should ever lie, but to then live a life that no righteous person should ever live, to die a death that no good person should ever die. The Father gave that gift to you. Remember that that is the gift of all gifts. And without that gift, nothing else has any real meaning, any lasting meaning at all. Men and women, do not become distracted by the various things that we now associate with Christmas. The glitz, the glam, the riches at times. These things that we do to celebrate are not necessarily bad things, they're often good things, but they can draw us away from the essence of Christmas, which is the humility of Jesus Christ. It's not a day for fasting. It's not a day for wiping our tables clean. It's a day for feasting. But don't allow your feasting to cause you to forget the humiliation of your Savior. Don't allow the gifts, don't allow the joy to draw you away from Jesus, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. May we keep these things in our minds. 
that tomorrow as your table is filled with plenty, perhaps stop at some point and perhaps remind your family that our tables are filled because the Holy Family was impoverished for us. And indeed, the Christ child himself became lower than a slave for us. Because everything was taken from Him, we receive everything. Because He became low, we rejoice and are lifted up. Beloved, let us be mindful of what it is we celebrate. Not merely family, not merely friends. We celebrate the birth and the foreshadowing of the death of the Son of God Himself. Beloved, if God were to send His warriors to strike us down and put us to death, He would be right to do so, for after all, we are sinners who in our lives have been at war with God. That is not how God has acted. And that is not what Christmas is about. God has sent His Son to be humbled for us, to receive our judgments, that warriors become Christmas carolers, that the cries of war become a song of peace. And so, beloved, may we this day know the peace of which the angels sang. May we trust and find our salvation in the Christ child. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.